Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 60 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Has Horowitz Cured Lyme Disease? An interview with Dr. Richard Horowitz and Savvy Glow. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast is very exciting because Dr. Richard Horowitz discusses what he believes is the clinical cure for chronic Lyme disease, which he will also present at the Lyme Mind Conference at the Times Center in New York City on Saturday, October 19th. Dr. Horowitz is a board-certified internist in private practice in Hyde, New York. He is also the medical director of the Hudson Valley Healing Arts Center. In the last 29 years, he has treated over 13,000 chronically ill Lyme patients and has written two best-selling books, Why Can't I Get Better and How Can I Get Better. Accompanying Dr. Horowitz on today's podcast is Savvy Glow. She is the director of the operations at the ICANN School of Medicine, Mount Sinai, and the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare. She is also the organizing chair for the Lyme Mind Conference. If you'd like to attend this conference, please visit LymeMind.org to register. Admission is free. The conference's presentation will also be live streamed on Facebook. Welcome, Dr. Horowitz and Savvy Glow to the podcast. Thanks so much. Hello. So, uh, Dr. Horowitz, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm sure they are all generally familiar with you, but I'd like you to just share some of your background with our listeners. I'm a board-certified internist. I've been living in the Hudson Valley, New York, for a little over the past 30 years. I've seen over 13,000 chronically ill Lyme patients, and I recently was a member of the HHS Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, co-chair of the other tick-borne disease and co-infections subcommittee, and I'm now still working for HHS on their Babesia and Tick-Borne Virus Subcommittee. So I've been involved in the field for about three decades, and I've been looking for answers and solutions for chronically ill patients. And Savvy, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, my name is Savvy Glow. I'm the Director of Operations at the Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai, and the Institute for Next Generation Healthcare. I am the organizing chair for the Lyme Mind Conference. And Savvy, can you share with our listeners how you came to work at Mount Sinai? My background is in clinical research, and I joined the Department of Genetics and Rare Genetic Disorders in January 2013 to work with PKU patients, and I transitioned into digital health and next-generation healthcare kind of at the start of the wearable technology insurgence that happened with the Fitbits and the iPhones, and so I've been working in data science and clinical research for the last five years. Dr. Horowitz, could you please share with our listeners the titles of your two books? Sure. The first one that I wrote was Why Can't I Get Better through St. Martin's Press. It was put out in 2013. And the last book that I wrote was How Can I Get Better? That was also from St. Martin's Press, and that came out in 2017. Dr. Horowitz, could you share with our listeners a little bit about your experience that you shared in your book, Why Can't I Get Better? And specifically, can you share with us the story about working with your patient named Eve, who encouraged you to go to your first Lyme conference? Uh, sure. I actually remember it quite well. So I was in my medical office and this woman who had been a patient for a while who had a Bell's palsy, which she had been to a neurologist and no one could tell her why she had it. And of course, we discovered it was Lyme. After we discovered it was Lyme and we treated her and she started getting better, she told me about this conference that Karen Forshner was putting on from the Lyme Disease Foundation out in Boston. So she convinced me to go. And when I went there, Dr. Joe Boroscano, Dr. Kenneth Liedner, and Sam Danta were all on the stage. They were, you know, of course, my Lyme heroes at the time because I'd been searching for answers. And that was the first conference that I went to and learned about the fact about using longer-term antibiotics. I believe it was the year afterwards I learned about Babesia being a possible parasitic infection. That's how I ended up discovering it in one of my patients. So 
these conferences have played a major role in my learning as a clinician and bringing it back into my clinic and helping patients. Now, you wrote in your book that this conference in particular changed your professional life. Can you share with our listeners how this conference in particular changed your professional life? So at the time, there was a lot of controversies between infectious disease doctors and other doctors as far as how to treat Lyme. And when I moved up to the Hudson Valley, I moved into the largest Lyme endemic area in the United States. I didn't realize at the time because I was from Bayside, Queens. I lived in the boroughs my whole life. So these patients were coming in with erythema migrans rashes and about 75, 80% would get better, but 20 or 25% did not. And my teachers in med school said the most important thing you need to know when you get out into the world is to put yourself in patient's shoes and do for them what you would want done to make them better. So I was really kind of stumped because I would give them 30 days of antibiotics, they would get better, but the 25% would relapse. And what happened at this conference is I got to see some of the science presented by Dr. Donter, Dr. Liegner, and Dr. Boriscano that, in fact, these could be chronic persistent infections, their patients were getting better, and it started changing the trajectory of how I was treating these patients and, you know, led me to, in fact, then look for other answers. So it really made a big difference in my clinical career. Dr. Horowitz, you have come up with a diagnostic and treatment protocol that is unique, and it's unique in the chronic disease arena. Could you share with our listeners how your participation in conferences led you to your MSIDS diagnostic and treatment tool? Sure. So what have the, the MSIDS model, MSIDS stands for Multiple Systemic Infectious Disease Syndrome. And I, I coined the term based on the fact that as I kept seeing these chronically ill patients, and looking for answers, what would happen is I would go to a conference, for example, the conference at the LDF the year afterwards, and they started talking about Babesia, a parasite, that you could have day sweats and night sweats and chills. And then I would come home to my clinic and I would see a young patient in a wheelchair with drenching sweats and say, hey, this looks like Babesia, but was never found in our area in the Hudson Valley. And we sent out the ticks, discovered it was in the ticks, treated this woman, and 10 days later, she was walking out of a wheelchair for the first time in five years. And what would happen is conference after conference, I would then learn at another conference about Bartonella. Another woman wasn't speaking. She went to Mass General. They said it was some type of an atypical migraine. I treated her Bartonella. She spoke for the first time in five years. So what would happen, whether it was classical medical or integrative conferences, talking about hormones, talking about mitochondrial dysfunction, I would start to integrate the information into a medical model that was a comprehensive chronic disease model where the idea was, and this applies for Lyme, is that there's an inflammatory component in the body. The inflammation could be coming from Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, but could also be coming from co-infections like Babesia, Bartonella, mycoplasma. But it also could be coming from a sleep disorder or from leaky gut and problems with the microbiome of your gut or you're mineral deficient in zinc. And then this inflammation would have downstream effects in the body causing autoimmunity or causing POTS, dysautonomia, low blood pressure. So it started becoming a chronic disease model and, and pieces of the model really came from attending these different conferences where I would integrate it, try out these different modalities in my, in my clinic. And now 30 years later, I've developed a model that helps the vast majority of people who come to me. So Savvy, can you share with our listeners your Lime Mind conference and what caused you to participate and create this conference? Sure. So the Lyme Mind Conference is in its fourth year, and it started because we were a bunch of data scientists who joined 
the Cohen Tick-Borne Disease Consortia as the data aggregation, the data coordination center. So we are a bunch of scientists who never worked in Lyme disease and didn't have a lot of experience with the disorder specifically, but we are very familiar with building repositories and using our methods to make novel discoveries for treatments and for diseases. So we wanted to host our first conference to bring together the consortia and learn about what everybody was doing. And so really we hosted our first conference as a crash course for ourselves in what was happening in Lyme disease. We opened the event to the public because we believe in open source science and we also believe in citizen science and engaging with the public. We were so shocked in our first year that when we opened it to the public, we had 150 people register with absolutely no publicity whatsoever. So we, we saw an opportunity here to really engage with patients, to engage with caregivers, and to start to bridge the gap between researchers and physicians. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with my science team, with my lab, and we were sitting around the table and we just had this new influx of RNA-seq data land on our servers, and we were just talking about some of the interesting discoveries we were seeing. And one of the researchers piped up and said, I don't even know a Lyme patient. This is all new to me. And I was shocked by that because, one, we're in New York, and this is an endemic area, and you know, you drive... 20 minutes upstate or get out of the city and everybody knows of Lyme disease and most people can count off on one hand three of their close relatives who probably encountered it. So I realized that I had an opportunity here too to engage with the patient community and help illuminate some of our science just by getting patient stories and starting to, to give a human face to these many data points that we were collecting. Over the years, our event has gotten much, much bigger and this year, we're having a single day event where we have multiple breakout sessions. We have incredible physicians and researchers like Dr. Horowitz joining us to give the latest advances that are happening in Lyme disease. And hopefully this provides hope and this provides an opportunity for patients to engage with the scientific process and to understand how much is happening in this universe. Savvy, can you share with our listeners the date of the conference, the time, place, and cost of the conference? Sure. The event is Saturday, October 19th. Registration opens at 8.15. The first talk with Dr. Neil Spector is at 9 o'clock. He'll be giving us an overview of kind of the state of the art of what's happening in Lyme disease treatments. And the event will go until 5 o'clock in the evening. It is free. There is breakfast and lunch provided, and it's an entire day of, of activities. We're going to have members of the NIH in the audience. We're going to have members from the TIC Act, the congressional legislation that is currently moving its way through the House and the Senate. And we're going to have a number of really amazing advocates also there. Jesse Rubin, who is a musician, is going to be playing during the day. And we're also going to have an art gallery open where a number of Lyme patients are going to be presenting some of their art. Savvy, are you going to be live streaming your presentations? Yes, it will be available on Facebook, on our Facebook live stream for patients who are unable to attend in person. 
Dr. Horowitz, we actually had a podcast with a woman named Joanna Petrakis a couple of months ago, and we actually entitled the episode The Canadian Stalker because she shared with us a story of having stalked you so that she could get your attention to assist her in her treatment journey. Do you expect many people to try to stalk you at the Lime Mine conference? It does occasionally happen, but they're, they're kind stalkers. They're desperate stalkers. These are people just who are desperately looking for answers, who just want five minutes of my time. So the, the truth is, is I don't really mind it. They're not malicious people. They're people who have just been suffering for a long time and just don't really truthfully know where to turn. Dr. Horowitz, can you share with us why you're presenting at this conference? And I understand you're going to be presenting some very exciting findings this year. This is kind of interesting. Most researchers, in fact, most of the research that's been funded by the Cohens that has taken place at John Hopkins and other major universities, what they first do is they look in culture to look and see how certain antibiotics and certain drugs may affect forms of Borrelia. And just to give you a bit of a history lesson, if we went back seven or eight years, uh, most of us didn't even know that Lyme was what's called a persister bacteria, meaning it persisted in a similar way to other bacteria that are known to be chronic persistent infections like tuberculosis, like leprosy, brucella, Q fever, et cetera. So the first of these came out of John Hopkins and Kim Lewis's lab, where they started talking about Borrelia being a persister. And what's happened in the last couple of years is once I learned about that from Hopkins, I went back to some of my Mount Sinai training, and I decided to look at the mycobacterium drugs, the drugs used for tuberculosis and leprosy. And I started using rifampin and dapsone. Dapsone is a drug that has been out for many, many years. I repurposed it, uh, which a lot of people do for other diseases, in this case for Lyme. And the advantage of this drug is that it's a sulfur type derivative. It hits the persister forms of Lyme. It affects the biofilm forms of Lyme. When combined with doxycycline and rifampin, it hits all morphological forms. It has an anti-inflammatory effect and it has very good penetration into the brain. And it's not an IV drug, it's an oral generic drug. So in the last five years, we've written up two studies in 300 patients showing that Dapsone statistically helped the majority of major Lyme symptoms, meaning fatigue, joint and muscle pain, nerve pain, sleep disorders, memory concentration problems, mood, headaches, etc. But what we didn't have is we didn't have the culture results to prove that Dapsone actually worked. So I kind of did things backwards. We went to uh, the University of New Haven and Dr. Shoppy's group. And we did a study looking at the effect of Dapsone alone and in combination with other intracellular antibiotics against the resistant morphological forms of Borrelia burgdorferi Lyme. And what we discovered is Dapsone was a very highly effective persister drug, especially mixed with doxy and rifampin. And it was effective for not just the persister forms, but the biofilm forms. So we basically proved that the clinical efficacy we've been seeing in the last 300 patients um, now has a good, hard scientific basis because we see in culture how quickly these drug regimens will actually start killing off these resistant forms. So it's my understanding that you discovered this Dapsone protocol as a consequence of trial and error with a, a patient of yours. Well, so what actually happened is I discovered a type of Dapsone protocol with a patient. So Dapsone, I actually came up with just listening to Dr. Ying Zhang's research on persisters. But what happened is I'd been using doxyrifampin and Dapsone for a couple of years. But what happened is one gentleman who had been sick for about seven or eight years in his 20s had come to see me and very, very ill, fatigue in bed, couldn't work, couldn't go to school, horrible memory, joint pain. And 
in his third to fourth month of treatment with doxyrifampin and dapsone, he accidentally took a double dose of the dapsone, meaning instead of 100 milligrams a day, he doubled it and took 100 milligrams twice a day. And he came in his fourth month, and I asked him how he was doing, and he basically said horrific. He was herxing. He had very bad fatigue and pain and memory problems, and I asked him what he was taking. And he said, you know, I'm taking doxy twice a day, rifampin twice a day, and dapsone twice a day. And I said, oh, my God, dapsone's once a day. You were taking twice as much as you were supposed to. Stop the drugs. Come back in a month and let me see how you're doing. Well, he stopped the drugs. This was at four months of treatment. He'd been sick again for seven or eight years. And he was, like, almost completely well. He had some neuropathy, but he had immune deficiency needing IVIG. We followed him every two to three months for one year without any further antibiotics. He never relapsed. So I decided, since my wife had been sick probably for over 30 years, we've been married for 21 at this point, she had been sick with chronic Lyme and would keep getting better every time I would put her on antibiotics or herbs and attack something on the MSIDS model. I said, hey, honey, would you like to be a guinea pig? I got this guy who is in full remission from this protocol just by increasing Dapsone. Now, my wife had already had benefits from the Dapsone, but at 50 milligrams when she took it for six months and stopped, she was PCR positive in her blood for Lyme. We then went to 100 milligrams of Dapsone, the usual dose used for leprosy, and she felt much better, but again, relapsed. So I gave her the exact protocol that this gentleman took, but it was only a seven-week protocol where we ramped up the dose of Dapsone, 25 milligrams week one, 50 week two, 100 week three, and 100 twice a day, weeks four, five, six, and seven. It was a seven-week oral generic protocol. My wife has now been two years symptom-free in remission since that time. And we gave this protocol out to 110 people. I've not published this yet. I have to go through the charts. It's a lot to go through these charts and do a retrospective. I may just publish some of the case studies the way Dr. Liegner did. But in any case, in looking at it, it's about 70 out of 110 of these people that have stayed in full remission, meaning it's as close to a cure for this disease as I've seen, but the 40 people who failed the protocol all had active co-infections with Babesia and Bartonella. And I know that because the Babesia was fish positive, the Bartonella was fish positive. And now, in fact, we're trying disulfiram, this other persister drug discovered by uh, Stanford University, Dr. J and uh, Kim Lewis's group. And we're finding that if we use doxyrifampin, zithromycin, and disulfiram, similar to switching out for Dapsone, some of these people with Bartonella seem to be getting better, but they're not yet off the protocol. We need to follow them. So it's, it's pretty exciting. We have what I believe clinically to be the closest to at least a clinical cure. I don't think it's a microbiological cure because I would not at all be surprised if we went in there and did PCRs and tissues, we might find a few stragglers. But for all intensive purposes, these people are staying well for long periods of time and they're not relapsing and they're no longer on treatment. So Dr. Horowitz, how long would someone have to take the antibiotic combinations that you've outlined? Is this a lifetime, long-term use of antibiotics or something else? No. So this particular protocol actually is a seven week. The people who had co-infections, we gave it for three months. So um, I put in a grant for a, a triple blind placebo controlled multi-center prospective Dapsone trial. And basically I did it for three months, meaning it's three months of oral medication. And the reason I did it for three months is because even though seven weeks seemed to have worked in a lot of these patients, they had previously been treated with Dapsone or with other drugs. And these will be people who will be signing up, will be naive, who may have never taken a persister drug. 
And one of the one of the scientific literature studies that was important that came out in the last couple of years is that there are persister cells that can come out of these biofilms and stay dormant for weeks after they leave the biofilms, meaning you have to cover for a certain period of time these persister cells. So we basically did it for three months, but again, I need to do this as a prospective trial, just like the NIH did their double-blind placebo-controlled trials. And I think that the politics of this disease saying, oh, it's not a chronic persistent infection, you don't need antibiotics, we will show to the world once and for all, in fact, this is a chronic persistent infection, but the reason your NIH trials didn't work is you weren't using the right drugs. You weren't using persister drugs, you weren't opening up the biofilms, and basically you weren't looking at any of the inflammatory factors on the MSIDS model with downstream effects like POTS. All of these things need to be addressed for people to get better. None of that had been done in the prior NIH studies. So Dr. Horowitz, I understand that presenting at this October 19th conference with you will be one of your early Lyme heroes who you met during your first Lyme conference, Dr. Liegner. That's correct. And I understand he's going to be presenting on one of the drugs that you've just discussed, Dicelfrin. Yeah, so Ken, Ken and I have been in contact for years, and I knew about the research that came out of Stanford and Kim Lewis this group. And once I saw the, the three cases, Ken only presented on three cases that he published, but at this point we signed up 150 people. So I have a pretty large group on disulfiram. I'll talk briefly about it at the Mount Sinai conference for people to hear about it. I'll give you some of the preliminary research, but what I can tell you is I thought Dapsone was a big Herx drug. Disulfiram beats the bandwagon. It is clearly the largest Herxheimer drug I have ever seen for patients. Everyone's wondering, we need a good Lyme test to prove if someone has Lyme. You could probably give them one pill of this disulfiram, and if they hurt like crazy, you know they've got persisters, because I did use this drug years ago in alcoholics, and they would not drink alcohol, and I never saw effects like this. So I'm taking the research, and I'm using it, especially in the patients who have co-infections, because the double-dose dapsone protocol seems to be quite effective for Lyme itself, but it is not as effective in the people who have co-infections. So I'm presently examining this drug in alone and in combination therapy, and probably sometime next year when I accumulate the results, I'll be able to share it in a scientific publication. So, Savvy, can you talk to us about what other types of exciting news folks who are attending your conference can expect to hear? Absolutely. We have an entire hour devoted to a special topic discussion for care models for pregnant women and for children. Phyllis Bedford, who is the founder of the Limelight Foundation out in California, will be moderating this panel along with Dr. Crystal Barnwell, who is currently on the islands, and Sue Faber, who researches and funds congenital Lyme disease up in Canada, and Dr. Saruchi Chandra, who is a functional medicine specialist in California. I've heard from the organizing team that this is going to be a really exciting discussion and one that I think is going to be very important for many of the members of patient community to be part of, as this is certainly a topic for a lot of conversation, but not always one that is adequately addressed at many conferences. Dr. Horowitz, do you have any recommendations for folks who are herxing during the course of our podcast? We've had folks talk about various protocols they've used to try to help themselves through the Herxheimer challenges, including dry brushing. Some folks have used niacin along with different types of light protocols. Do you have any recommendations for folks who are herxing? Probably the most effective and easiest one I found over the years is alkalizing the body, uh, whether you use Alka-Seltzer Gold or sodium bicarb trisalts. 
Alkalizing the body and shifting the pH helps with all of the acidic byproducts that are being produced during the Herx's, or Herxheimer reaction is essentially an inflammatory reaction where they're called inflammatory cytokines and, and chemokines. These molecules get produced, headaches and fatigue and pain and, and cognitive issues. So you have to detox the body. And we use glutathione, liposomal 2000 milligrams all at once with Alka-Seltzer gold or sodium bicarb. People can do it two or three times a day. And we find that it's effective in about 70% of the people. But some people also, their detoxification pathways are not working properly. So you're, you're dealing with, you know, drinking two to three liters of fluid a day to make sure you're processing this through the kidneys. You've got to make sure your bowels are moving properly, proper fiber and probiotics. And the liver detox pathways, the phase one and phase two pathways of the liver play a big, big role here. So we use what are called NRF2 activators, NRF2 activators, the biggest ones being curcumin and broccoli seed extract or sulforaphane glucosinolate. And what these do is they lower inflammation in the body. They open up the detoxification pathways, and they're quite effective at helping, in, especially when you're giving them in higher doses, like four grams of curcumin, 300 milligrams of broccoli seed extract. These are very helpful with things that also are like drainage remedies, uh, lymphatic drainage, liver drainage, kidney. All of these things combined with alkalizing and glutathione seem to help. And of course, people will do saunas and dry brushing and niacin and other things to detox. Dr. Harwitz, the patient group that you've been working with, are they largely chronic Lyme disease patients as opposed to acute patients? I no longer see acute patients. It's very unusual for me to see active patients coming in with EM rashes. I stopped taking new patients a long time ago. We sometimes get a few stragglers through. I'm still looking for help. If there's any doctors or NPs or PAs out there listening to the podcast and you'd like to join my practice, please give us a call. We've been kind of stuck for years. I'm doing doctor training now. I trained 80 physicians this summer at our medical center where we did an entire three-day weekend workshop, 15 hours of lectures and over five or 600 slides. And I've done this now because I'm passing on what I have learned is helping people to the next generation of physicians. So that's kind of how I'm trying to do it because we're not seeing that many new patients. If there are any folks who are listening to the podcast that are interested in participating in your study, is there going to be an opportunity for patients to apply for your, your research? Well, so if we do get the grant, of course. If we don't get the grant from one of the foundations that I put it in, then at that point, I'll have to look for other funding to be able to do it or possibly speak to some of my colleagues to figure out if there's still a way to do a multi-center study with an IRB. But, you know, first step is trying to get it funded because it's a lot of time and a lot of effort to do that. But certainly, if we do get it funded, it will be open to a few hundred patients to enroll in the study. Is there anything that our listeners can do to assist you in appealing to your foundational sources to fund your research? Probably all I would say at this point is for those who have succeeded in the double-dose absolute protocol, and I think some of them will be at the uh, Mount Sinai Center. I've encouraged my wife to come. And one of the patients I saw actually this week who had been sick, I think he's 21 or 22 years old. He was sick for years. I just saw him four days ago. He finished the double-dose absone protocol, and he was great. His whole family was in the room, and they told me, in fact, that they were going to be coming. And I said, please come. You'll be able to speak to people directly about it. So if it turns out that he and my wife and a few others, I'm not sure how many else will be coming, it's always good to hear from people themselves what their experience has been. I think not that people don't believe what I'm telling them, but you know they like seeing it in published format, and I've not yet published this. What I've just been publishing, as I said, is we have a peer review study right now. It's in review on the culture studies, 
But it's pretty remarkable, actually, that based on the research that John Hopkins and Stanford and Kim Lewis's group and Eva Shapi, all of these researchers that have been funded by the Cohen's and Bay Area Lyme and other foundations, they have provided really the framework, the foundation for uh, clinicians like myself to go forward and to find solutions in translational medicine. So I hope some of those patients will be there and maybe they'll have a chance to, to speak to other doctors and some of the people who will be there from the foundations. So I love what Dr. Horowitz was just saying about being able to share stories. The Lyme Mind program is also committed to this. We will have a videographer on site conducting interviews and also collecting these stories to share with the broader public. And we encourage we encourage patients, caregivers, physicians, and researchers to join us in collecting this information and and helping helping share with the world the challenges of living with this disease. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dr. Richard Horowitz and Savvy Glow. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about the Lime Mind Conference, please visit LimeMind.org. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to visit the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your past comments on this podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review of this particular podcast on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.